the first eight weeks, uh, we really looked at what was Paul's prayer for the church. Uh, and last week we saw where he kind of concludes it with this, this grandiose prayer for the church in verses 14 through 21. He ends it, he says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Um, and now Paul is getting to the practical things of the church, to the doing things of the church. But it's really important to bear in mind the order at which Paul wrote this. Um, in starting with his prayer, in starting with theology, and after he establishes his theology, then he's moving to the practical things. And that's important because so often Christianity has this public perception that it's a religion of imperatives. And for those of you who aren't grammaticians, which I don't claim to be imperatives or what? They're, they're, quest they're, they're not questions. They're just... They're, they're, they're commands. They're something like, th do this, accomplish this. And so um, people see Christianity from the outside, and it's always do this, don't do this, um, act like this, don't act like this. And Paul is going to give us imperatives in these next three chapters. He's going to tell us how we should act and what we should not be doing. Um, but it's after he's already defined for us what Christ has done. You see, the gospel, what Christ has done, is something that has happened. It's something that happened in the past, and we live in light of what has happened. And so when we understand what has happened, we change our actions because we have been changed by the gospel. We've been changed by things that have happened in the past. We've been changed by the work of Christ. And so we don't do things to become something we're not. We don't do things trying to become something we're not. We do things in order to be more authentic to what Christ has already made us in himself. And so we do things out of what we've already been transformed into. We don't do things to transform ourselves into something. And we are getting to the do portion of this book. And he stated the theology in the first three chapters. And now he's saying that when you get theology right, when you get a right view of God, when you get a right view of sin, when you get a right view of Jesus, and you get a right view of the church, things should change. Things happen as a result of that. And so I just want to pray as we get rolling and start looking um, at Paul's uh, section where he starts really bringing practical things to bear on the church. And so let's just pray. Um, dear God, I, I thank you for uh, your, your words in Ephesians. I thank you for Paul. Um, and the way you used him to build up the church. And Lord, as we look at your word tonight, I pray that we are encouraged by it. I pray that uh, Paul's prayer in the first three chapters comes to bear on us tonight, that the Holy Spirit works on our hearts, that it gives um, me words to say as we handle a text that is alive and active. Lord, we pray, uh, we thank you that, that you promise us that as we're gathered here as a body of believers, um, where we do so in the fullness of God. We do so not out of human effort or out of a desire to gather, but we do so because you've promised to, to love on us. You've promised to teach us. You've promised to grow us. You've promised to fellowship with us as we come together before you today, and so we're grateful for that. Um, we love you, Lord, and we look forward to what you have to teach us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. And so... Paul is actually going to start um, the passage off tonight with a plea for unity. But I just want us to stop here and think of that word unity, because that's a word where culture loves that today. They love the idea of unity. Um, but the problem is I think they've misplaced the definition for unity. 
And I think they've tr they're trying to change the definition of unity. Because when culture says unity, or to be united, or to unify over something, what it really wants is tolerance. It wants you to, to come together. It wants all people everywhere to allow all things at all times. That's what it wants. That's the perfect unity according to worldly standards. That we tolerate one another and that we work together and that all things are accepted by all people in all circumstances. And, and in Missoula, we live in a town that loves the word tolerance, that promotes the word tolerance, that, that loves this idea. That it's like if Missoula tolerated everybody, we would have this unity, this love, this chi that would make our granola crunchier and our banners brighter. And it would just be like this, this paradise of unity if we could all just tolerate each other. But the problem is, in order for us to enter into that mythical paradise, we have to give up certain aspects of our belief or lower standards of belief. We can't enter into that if we hold certain things or if your, your beliefs differ from their beliefs, you have to leave them at the door and then you can come in into this unity. The problem is, is that's not unity. That's not what unity is. Unity means to be united on something. It means that we, if, if we are unified together as a church, as a body of believers, as, as Grizzly Christian Fellowship, as people who go to Sovereign Hope Church, we are a group of people who stand on similar ground. We stand on something and we're also distinct from something else. That's what it means to be united, is you are united, but you're also contrasted by something else. Think of, think of the United States of America. There's a reason they use the United States, because it's 50 states and Washington, D.C., and, uh, but, and we have something. We have a distinct constitution. We have distinct standards for citizenship. We have a distinct government. And even though Canada is above us and Mexico is below us and we live among other nations, we are united in ourselves, but distinct from other things. We might be near Mexico. We might have interaction with Mexico, but we're not Mexico. And thank God we're not Canada. We're the United States of America. We are distinct in what you're united on. What we stand on is what makes us distinct. And see, the world says that, that if Islam gives up regulations on women and Catholicism gives up issues on birth control and Protestant Christianity gives up the debate on homosexuality and their pro-life position and original sin in the Bible, then we'll have this great unity that can finally come together and we can cooperate and usher in this new utopian age of just fellowship, joy, and butterflies. That's what the world tells us. It's like, no, there would be no unity if that were the case. Because, excuse me, because if that were the case, no one would stand on anything. None of us would have anything to be united over. It would be like a giant bowl of cultural oatmeal with no taste and no texture. It's just this mush where no one's allowed to be distinct and no one's allowed to stand for anything as long as or, or because it would impose on somebody else's thing. You see, unity needs boundaries. That's the basis of unity. And there's not a single person out there who would hear the word unity and say, that's bad, I don't want that. But if you look logically at what unity is, unity is something that has boundaries. It's bound by something. If you remove the boundaries necessary for unity, you're not promoting unity, you're hindering unity. You're putting obstacles in the place of unity because you're narrowing what people can stand on and what unites them. To be united, something must stand at the center. And so this is what Paul's talking about. And he's talking about unity tonight, and he's actually talking about 
this unique paradox, this tension between unity and diversity. And he's not talking about unity between religions or between nations or between political spectrums. He's talking about it in the context of the church, as the whole book of Ephesians is. Paul is writing to the church because it's important for us to grasp this idea of unity and diversity at the same time. And so Paul continues after his prayer um, in chapter 4 and verse 1, and he says this. This is him now speaking to the church. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so first of all, we need to stop here before we go on because he's basing everything that's going to follow what he's saying, which is three chapters worth of words on a page. He's basing that off of the calling to which you've been called. And so what is it that you've been called to? What is that calling? And, and because, and we talked about individualism as we started this book because Paul's gospel to, to, to Ephesus is the most anti-individualistic book out there. Because the church is not an individualistic church. And so, but oftentimes we get calling and we tend to make it subjective. Well, what's, what's my calling? What's your calling? What has God called you to do? What has God called me to do? What has God called him to do or, or her to do? Or what has God called my dog to do? Everybody has this individual calling that we're all seeking. But Paul uses it here as a corporate word. He says, what have you, the church, as the church, as a people group, what have you been called to? You see, Paul is using calling in a word kind of contrary to how we use calling in a Christian sense today, where it's an individual thing. Paul's saying, you have received a calling as the church, a single, normative, universal calling. And what is that calling? Well, he spent three chapters defining that calling for us. According to Paul, our calling is to a faith in Christ and therefore to Christ's church. That is what you're called to. That is your calling. If someone says to you at a Christian conference or at a Christian group or in church, well, hey, what is it you've been called to do? Your answer is, I've been called to faith in Christ. That's what you've been called to do. And it's a faith in Christ is what you're called to and to Christ's church. And the, the unique thing is that's not two separate callings. It's not that, that God has called you to respond in faith to Christ and now God is going to call you to live your life inside of the church. When you respond in faith to Christ, you are called to follow Christ in the church. You, you can't separate the two. It's not Christ and the church. It's Christ in the church. It's like peanut butter and jelly. You don't separate them. You don't mess with them. They go together in every sense and meaning of the phrase because Christ died for the church. You can't separate those two things. Christ defines your calling. Your calling is defined in the person and work of Christ. And what Paul is saying here, he says, because of your calling, because you have been called, you act according to your calling. See, this makes sense, right? If you have been, if you are hired on to be a computer programmer, you don't act like a barista. You act like a computer programmer right? The cow goes moo, the dog goes woof, the fox goes g -g 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 and the church does church things. That's what we've been called to do. And so we act as such. We act as people who have been redeemed by Christ, who are then called to live a life inside of the church. 
And so Paul is saying here, because of your calling in Christ, because of the immeasurable riches of which Christ loved us and set us free from sin, because of that calling, he now picks up in verse 2. He says this, Walk with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, the one hope that belongs to your call. See, again, your call, the church's call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, what a great passage. I, I, I love that passage. If those of you um, who have been at Sovereign Hope for a while, we do a thing called One Night, where we just celebrate the church. And, and th- this is our verse our, our, our origin, our, our passion behind one night comes from this verse and just celebrating the one faith, the one baptism, the one Lord, this unity that the church possesses. And see, this is a really critical thing, especially because we're talking about unity here. And people will take this passage on unity and say, why can't we have unity? And in saying unity, we know what they're really saying is tolerance. And again, we see a boundary. There is one faith, One Lord, one baptism, one way to heaven. It's a narrow thing. There is a oneness about Christianity. It's not open-ended. It's not broad as the earth. There is a specific boundary to Christianity, but inside of that boundary is an amazing unity. There's not two lords. There's not two ways to salvation. There is one Lord, one salvation, and one church. And so why then? That should, that should cause us, even as Christians, to look and say, well, why then are there so many denominations and splits throughout Christendom, right? And today, as Noah mentioned in his prayer, um, today this is a good question to ask because 496 years ago um, today, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, uh, a Catholic monk, walked up to the doors of All Souls Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and tacked on his 95 thesis. And these 95 theses were his complaints against the Catholic Church, um, and he called for that church to reform. And because that church didn't reform, there was a huge split, Catholics and Protestants. We, being the Protestant church, are a result of what the world sees as disunity. We split from the Catholics. And so much of Christianity has been shaped by splits, by people dividing over things yet for the sake of unity. And so what's up with this? Is is this a contradiction to what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4? Because you are going to encounter people who undermine the church and say, I shouldn't be involved with the church because the church is so, there's Lutheran and Methodist and Baptist and Presbyterian and Independent and all these kind of things. That's not a sign of unity. That's not a sign of a healthy body. But it's interesting to look at Paul's message in what we just read in Ephesians. Because the basis of Paul's unity wasn't the church. The basis of unity was Christ. Look back at the text, or or look where he's going to go next in verses 7 through 10. He says, "But But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high and led a host of captives... And he gave gifts 
to men. And here's a little aside, so it's, it's in parentheses, and he's saying, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all things, above the heavens that he might fill all things. And so just, just quickly, that little aside, what Paul's quoting there is he's quoting Psalm 68. Um, and in Psalm 68, it's talking about the triumphant Lord who, who ascends to the throne and sets captives free. And what Paul's saying here is he's saying, that's talking about Jesus because never before Jesus did Christ ever descend or did God descend. God, God can't ascend because God was never low. But he's saying this psalm speaks of Jesus because Jesus came down to earth and went to the lowest regions and that he was died and buried in the earth, but he was ascended up. And so what Paul's doing in that aside is he's saying two things. One, Jesus died. And the other thing is two, he, he's explaining how Psalm 68 points to Jesus and that it's Jesus is the one who's ascended. Jesus is God who came down to earth and descended in order to ascend above all things. And so he's quoting Psalm 68, and we see that, that Jesus has come to set captives free. We were captive in our sin. That's what we saw in Ephesians 2. You who were dead in your sins and trespasses, God made alive together with Christ. And so Christ has set us free, and Christ has then given us gifts. Freedom and gifts come from Christ. We were in bondage but Christ set us free. That means that our basis for unity, our basis for freedom, our basis for fellowship is in Christ. If we lose Christ, the one who set us free, we lose oneness. No Christ, no unity. No Christ, no fellowship with the Father. No Christ, no redemption. No Christ, no forgiveness from sin. You see, Christ is the basis of unity. And it's because the person and work of Christ has been threatened throughout church history that there are divisions. Because the church tries to protect Christ. And because we're sinful and because we're flawed, people try to take what Christ has said and they try to warp it. And when we lose Christ, you lose unity. And the loss of Christ is the result of conflicts, for better or for worse, in Christianity today. When you lose Christ, you lose the ground you're standing on. Christ and his work on the cross is the unity for Christianity. If you lose Christ, you lose everything. If you lose Christ, you lose how we view creation. You lose how we view, um, uh, how we, how we view unborn children. You lose how we view the scripture. You, use, you lose how we view death. You lose how we view sin. When, you, when, when Christ dies, everything dies. And that's why the church protects that. Christ is the glue that holds together this diverse and eclectic and weird yet beautifully broken body that is the church. The church is about Christ and holds to Christ and clings to Christ and loves Christ. Now, the night before Jesus died, and, and this is just showing how Christ is the unity. Um, it's not that Christ gives unity. It's that Christ is the fullest picture of unity. Because the night before Christ died, um, he's praying. And, and uh, it's in John 17. It's a beautiful prayer that Christ is praying to God. He's on his own. He, he, he's sweating blood. He, he's, he's looking at the cross in, in, in the gospel, uh, one of the other gospels. He's saying, take this cup from me. He is worrisome. He's burdened. 
um, and he's praying to God, but his heart shifts and is praying for the church. And he talks about a unity in this prayer that supersedes denominations, races, and culture. And we see in here, Christ gives us a basis for unity. And I'm going to tell you his basis because we'll see it in his words. The basis of unity, according to Christ, is found in the Father's relationship to the Son and the Son's relationship to us. We see this um, in John 17, verses 20 through 23. So Jesus is praying here. Um, He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. See, when, and again, the basis of unity isn't like Christ. The basis of unity is Christ. Christ is the one who grants us access to perfect unity in the Father. Christ is the one that makes us acceptable to have fellowship, which is, which is part of unity. Christ has set us free from our former passions and given us a passion for himself. That's true unity. And not only has he set us free, but he's given us gifts. Look back and, and look at this giving aspect in Ephesians 4, verses 7 and 8. It says, but grace was given to each one of us. And so grace was given. Grace is a gift. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Paul says a similar thing um, in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, where he says this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so, Everything for Christ comes down to what God has given him, comes down to the authority, comes down to the oneness Christ has with God. And because Christ is God and has the authority of God, Christ can give us gifts as believers. The gifts that you have is the diversity that dwells inside of the unity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we become diverse. We are unified in that we are called according to one calling, under one Savior, under one cross, under one sacrifice for sin, but God in his mercy has given us gifts. And those gifts have a purpose, and Paul's going to talk about that tonight, but but I want you to, to get this right now. It's important for us to see that you right here, right now, sitting on Halloween um, in in a really hot classroom that's normally really cold, um, God has given you gifts for a purpose. So think about that. And I want you to think um, about that. Many times people tell you to think about it and you just pause for a little bit. But I want you to think about that. What are the gifts that God has given you? What are the gifts that Christ has given you? And some of you in your heads right now are like, man, I'm I missed the gift handout. Um, Some of you are like, what gifts didn't he give me? Um, And you're you're, kind of coming from two different angles here. Uh, But but you might have missed the most important part of Paul's message. And look back 
um, at verse 7, it says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You see, your gifts are given according to Christ. That means that you are gifted, even if you can't discover it, even if it's not ready at the top of your mind, you are gifted because Christ's gift is of immeasurable worth. And out of that overflow, he's given you something. And that means that if you're the person who sees yourself as God's gift to himself, you're not. God gave you those gifts for a purpose. You didn't earn them. You weren't so amazing that God gave you an extra gold star. God gave you gifts because of Christ. It is in humility that we accept Christ's gifts. And I love it because we understand this, that that things given to us by people are empowering in a sense. I mean, this is the whole thing about the Wizard of Oz, right? How many of you have seen the Wizard of Oz, right? It's, it's the, the, the scare, what is it? The scarecrow, the lion, the tin man, and, and Dorothy, and, uh, and, and they're going to Oz to get what? To get gifts, to get a heart, to get courage, to get a brain. They're all going there to get something. At the end of their journey, the great and powerful Oz gives them their gifts and shows them their gifts. But see, God is so much greater than a little man behind a curtain because God gives us our gifts at the beginning of the journey. Not at the end. It's not a reward. It's not something we earn. It's something he gives us knowing that he wants us to use them now. The things we use on the journey, not rewards we get after the journey. And so, so, so how can we discover our gifts? How, how can you do that? How can you find out what your gifts are? Well, a couple easy ways. You could pray about it. You talk to God about it. Um, you, could have, you, could have fel- you could fellowship. You could talk to somebody. So a lot of times, um, for me, it's easy because a lot of times people say, well, this is what you're not gifted in because I'm loud and quick with my words. And so they're like, that was not a gift that you just did. And so, but, but sometimes you get people like, you know what? I, I, I see this in you. And that's such an encouraging thing when the church does that. Paul talks about that in Colossians where, where the church encourages people in their gifts. Man, I can't tell you how, when being young in ministry, um, when people, even probably after I just totally messed up on something, came up and affirmed, said, you know, that's, that was a really, thank you for that. And, and not out of this false sense of puffing me up, but out of a thing where they saw, even amongst how poorly I did it at times, they saw a gifting and affirmed that. Encourage each other in that. That's part of the way you, you help somebody discover the gifts. That's part of being the church. Um, interact with people, talk about people, but uh, I want you to, to, to do that. I want you to find your gifts because you do have them and they're there for a purpose. And so we ought to not just pass through life mindlessly thinking about things, but we should want to discover what God has given us. And I think the easiest way, as, as I look at my life um, and as I look at the lives of, of people I come in contact with, one of the easiest ways um, to help discover your gifts or discern your gifts um, is to look at your passions. What are you passionate about? Because for better or for worse, whatever you're passionate about, you normally surround that with your strengths. You surround that with, with, with things you do to achieve it, things you do to maintain it. You see, desire is a gift from God. Our hearts didn't develop desire in a vacuum. They were built to desire God. They were built as a desiring heart. Our desire is a gift from Jesus. And when you find what you desire, you can typically look at what you desire 
and find your strengths. Follow your desire, look at your desire, and you learn something about yourself. For better or for worse. For instance, I love sports. And when I step back and look at why, um, and I've had to do this in ministry, why is it? I have to challenge why I like things. Why do I like sports? Well, one, I like the fellowship of sports. I like the team aspect of it. And I also like, well, one of my favorite things about I wouldn't like sports as much if I was the only person who liked sports because I would have no one to talk to about it. But I love dialoguing about sports. I, I had a sports talk show for four years. Um, I, I, I talk about sports. I, I enjoy, after a game, discussing it and interacting with people over it. So if I look at my passion right now, I've seen two inklings of gifts that God has given me. One is that I enjoy people. I do. God has given me a desire in some regard to enjoy people and to interact with people. And on the other hand, God has given me a desire and or an ability to communicate with people. To, to communicate, to interact, uh, um, and, and I like to. I went to journalism school. I like to write, and, and I wrote about sports, and so all these things. By looking at my desire, I've now realized something about myself. My wife, on the other hand, she has different desires. She loves to coach. She loves just sitting and, and listening to people, which is often hard for me. That's a downfall of coffee with Tyler. She loves just going out to coffee and listening to people. Not necessarily talking, but listening. And she loves to coach people. She loves to help people. And if she steps back and looks at her gifts, we can see her desire is supported by, uh, by, by her ability to help, to encourage, and to care for people. And so now by looking at my wife's desires, we begin to see some of her gifts. Now this is an extremely simplified way to just get you started on seeing what gifts God has given you. Um, but, but I want you to bear this in mind when you look at desires and passions because desires and passions are good. But desire is a gift from God. And if that desire is detached from purpose, desire can become a breeding ground for idols. That's why when we look at our gifts, we have to look at them redemptively. How is Christ redeeming our passions and our desires? And how then are the gifts that God has given us being used for his purpose rather than our own selfish, sinful purposes? Because as much as I love sports, I can worship them. As much as I get passionate about sports, I can put too much heart and soul and actual worship into sports. And as much as my wife loves to help people, she can be held captive by how those people view her. And those things that God has given us as gifts can just as easily enslave us. And that's why we need to not only discover our gifts, but we need to realize the purpose that God has given us gifts and utilize them in a redemptive way. And that's exactly what Paul is going to do in these next verses. He's going to show us the purpose of the gifts that Christ has given each and every one of us. Verses 11 through 14 of chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so that's a, that's a really popular passage when it comes 
to church because you really see the whole aspect of church there. You see the prophets and the evangelists and the preachers and the apostles and the shepherds and the teachers, and yet you see that they exist. Their purpose is to equip the saints, that's the whole church, all of the church, to equip the church for the work of ministry. Not the work of sitting and observing and listening. Those are necessary, but the end is not to gather a crowd. The end result of Christ's church is to send a crowd, to move a crowd, to motivate a crowd to actions. You see, my job as a pastor is not to do your work, but to teach you how to do work. You see, churches put on organizations and programs and leadership classes and discipleship and everything in between, and they do those hopefully not out of a desire to assemble people or to amaze people at whoever's teaching, but to do so so that you may build up the church on your own as the church. You see, you have an equal responsibility as someone sitting listening to a guy as I do up here. Now, the Bible says that I have to have a different accountability in that. One, and it's a terrifying task. Um, that, that, and I don't think enough about it. But when I read passages where it says, one day I'm going to sit before God and I'm going to have to give an account for everyone who sat under me in my church, I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> like, that's, that's not something that you're just like, great, I'm going to sleep well tonight. Because that's a weight and that's a burden that, that, that people, your pastors have. And, and leaders throughout the globe in the church have. But you have an equal responsibility to work on the church. That's what it just said. It said, he's given us the leaders in the church to equip the saints for ministry to build up the body of Christ. And so it's not like we teach you to minister, we teach you to read your Bible, we teach you to see Christ in scripture, we teach you about missions, and then we want you to go and, and, and rake leaves and that's it. Like that, if our church can just do ministry in the Pavarello Center, that'd be great. And that's good. And that's great. But more specifically, you need to build up the body of Christ. And while that happens by stocking soup kitchens and by raking leaves and by helping those who need help, it has to also be done by encouraging those who are in Christ with Christ and reaching those who are outside of Christ with the gospel of Christ. That's what it means to build up the church in unity to the fullness and measure of maturity in Christ. And that's the purpose of your passions. That's the purpose of your desires. And so again, think about what it is that God, Christ has given you as gifts. Whether it's organization, whether it's, it's encouragement, whether it's writing, whether it's communicating, whether it's hospitality, whether it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an academic mind or anything like that, God has given that to you to use to build up the church. And I love that in Colossians, when we looked at it last year, it was, the church was right in the middle of Paul's plan for sanctification. He's like, you want to grow more like Christ. Sanctification is the Christian word for becoming more like Christ. You want to become more like Christ, do it in the church. And here we see him using words like, uh, until we obtain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you get this? You are helping me mature in Christ. I'm helping you mature. You're helping me mature. He's helping you mature. She's helping you mature. The body is helping the body mature in Christ. 
Your pursuit of Christ is not your pursuit of Christ. You're held responsible for it. You're held accountable for it. But other people are either benefiting from your faith or being detrimented by your faith. So use your gifts wisely. Look at what God has established in you. And don't look at the church being like, how am I going to use this in the church? How does this match up? Look at it like, how am I going to use this in the church? I'm excited to see this passion that God has given me, this skill set that God has given me, and I know because God has told me that it is for the edification and the establishment and the strength and the worship of the overall church. Now here's the thing. Because God has given us different gifts, according to the immeasurable gift of Christ, we have different strengths and different weaknesses. We saw this in community group um, last week with me and my wife because uh, our community group got through like two questions out of six because uh, we do that. And uh, I wanted to, we got done with the first question, we were running out of time, and the second question was all about like, I wanna, we want to hear a story about how you've been changed in the church. And the third question was like, look at this verse and talk about the theology of church. And I'm like, let's skip over two and go to three. And my wife's like, let's do two. And, and so where she wanted to discuss how theology had impacted people, I wanted to skip to just the theology aspect of it. And in each of those ways, my wife was caring for the church and I was caring for the church. But through different passions and different strengths and different weaknesses. And we need to embrace that. Some of you are more outgoing than others. That doesn't mean that if you're not outgoing, you get a pass on evangelism. Some of you are better listeners and more reserved. That doesn't mean that if you're a go, 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 task-oriented extrovert, you're not held responsible for stopping and caring for people. We all are called to one call and none of us are exempt. But in that while some are more outgoing and some are more insightful and some are more uh, relational and some are more academic, all of us are needed to be the body of Christ. Some of you may have underdeveloped gifts, but that's okay. Because in the church, you develop those gifts and you mature those gifts and they find greater purpose there. And sports is just such a great aspect for this chunk of text in Ephesians because uh, just the team aspect and the team unity of sports um, is great because teams have unity. They either have good unity or they have disunity. It's not like teams just are void of unity. It's either a healthy unity or it's a unity that's moving away. And, and when you put on a, and we noticed this at Ultimate Frisbee, the, the guy who came and had his feet have to get amputated from running on frozen ground barefoot, like he, he's only showed up like three times and it's just been to ultimate Frisbee. But as soon as he's on our team, even though only a couple of us knew him outside of that field, that guy bled for our team, literally on the field. <laughs> he, he was running, he was sprinting, he was diving because he's on a team and he's fighting for the cause of the team with the passion of the team for the overall good of the team. But you know what kills team unity the quickest? It's not that someone dropped a pass or missed the shot or, or made a bad pass. It's not lack of skill. It's not people struggling in practice. It's people with a lack of desire that kill unity on a team. It's people who have zero desire to fight for the team, to work for the team, to strive for the team, to bleed for the team, 
to love for the team, and to labor for the team. You see, there is no unity with slackers. Nothing tears a team apart quicker than a member who doesn't care. It's crippling. And Paul said earlier in this text, he says, to bear with one another in love. And in love, I am telling you, the best thing you can do with your life is to love Christ and use your gifts in the church. There is nothing more enjoyable than that. There is nothing more fulfilling than that. And to not do that is to waste your life. That doesn't mean that you you drop out of school and go work at a church. That means you do what you're going to do with the church in mind. That means you become a teacher and you become a physical therapist and you become a doctor and you become an accountant and become all these things that you're going to study for, but you utilize these things and your gifts and your position and your skill set and your desires and your passions and you see what you do in light of what Christ has already done. If you're not participating in this, Paul warns that you will quickly be blown away. Because if you're not using your gifts for the church, if you're not helping encourage the church, you're not contributing to the church, it says that you will eventually be blown away by winds of false doctrine. The next fad that comes up will grab you. Why? Because you're attracted to it. Because it gives you something to do. There's nothing worth doing more than the church. And Christ has given us over to that. Those who do for the church in every aspect of their life are those who are anchored most solidly inside of Christ. And yet those who never do anything for the church and see their school life and their relationship life and their dating life and their friend life and their work life as separate from the church, I'm never surprised when I see them like the chaff that's blown away like the leaves right now, as they looked so beautiful three days ago, but then the wind comes, and at the slightest breeze, they're carried away. To do things in the church is to become rooted to Christ. But you, when you are set free, and you're laboring in the church, on the church, for the church, and as the church, you will experience the greatest love and joy you have ever known, and you will experience a greater unity with God and with others. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's a life of meaning, a life of substance, a life of passion and purpose. And the result of doing your part and me doing mine is a body united in love. And this is what Paul closes with. Rather, rather than being carried away, rather than not participating, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, it blows my mind when people see the church, and you see this so commonly um, in, in Christian films, in Christian documentaries, in Christian thought, um, where, where the church is just like, you know, the church, it's kind of narrow-minded, and we need to, to fix the church. And the church is the problem. And the church is a place um, of hate, and a place of apathetic people, and a place of stodgy doctrines that don't bring unity. But that's not what the church produces. That's what sin produces. Paul just told us what the church produces. When every part of the church, all 
30-some people who are in here. When each of you does your part, the church builds itself up in love. When the whole church does its part and moves according to the purpose which Christ has called it, the gifts that Christ has given us will show the world love. And not this chick-flicky, subjective love. Not love dumbed down by how we view love, but love as defined by Christ on the cross. Love. Real, lasting, permanent, self-sacrificial, saving, beautiful, attractive, passionate love. That's what the church brings. And that's what the church does. And that's what the church witnesses to. When we play our role, we encourage each other towards Christ in using his gifts for the church. And we promote a real and true and lasting unity. You see, so often people look at Jesus' prayer in John 17 and say, see, this is why you need unity in the church. And that's a great ground for unity in the church. But the biggest thing Jesus is saying, he's not saying, pray that they may be one so that they may be one. He says, pray that they may be one as the Father and I are one. See, the greatest moment of unity isn't found in the church. It's found in the salvation of the church in in God. See, we don't get unity with the Father unless we have unity with the Son. And this is what it means to be a body in motion. This is the gospel of the church, that each and every one of us are brought into unity with God through Christ, and then the church as a united body on Christ with diverse gifts and talents and giftings. We do things for the church as the church in the church, not even being employed by the church, but doing it because the blood of Christ compels us. And see, I love how Paul talks about in the first part um, of this book, he talks time and time again about the worth of Christ, about the richness of Christ. And he speaks of that because he knows that being a body in motion comes at a cost. But what he's saying is that you will never be deficient for the cost because the richness of the inheritance of Christ surpasses all understanding. And this is what we do This is what it means to be the church, to be a body in motion. And it's hard, and it's difficult, and it's wearisome, and it's thought-provoking, but it's also joyful, and beautiful, and lovely, and worship-producing, and awe-inspiring, and love-showing. This is what we do. Are you going to do it? So we've got three weeks left. Um, Last week, we started the Ephesians prayer challenge, and I just dropped my card. Um, But if you didn't start it with us, we've got three weeks left. We started it last week, and we looked at Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, and he prayed for three things. He prayed that Christ would dwell in the hearts of his church, that the church would know the unknowable love of Christ, and that the church would see the fullness of God in the church. And so we set alarms on our phones, and we're going to do so um, for three more weeks on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the same time, Um, wherever we are, when that alarm goes off, I just want us to pray for these things. And I want us to do this because this will help us and it will help the whole church. Pray that you discover the unity of God through Christ Jesus as an individual. Pray for GCF and pray for sovereign hope that the things that Paul is talking about here, the truths of the richness of the gospel of Jesus Christ soaks down in us and we do things for the church so that when the city of Missoula sees sovereign hope and sees GCF and sees the church of Christ on a large scale, they say in that those people get love. They are rooted in love. 
And that love is defined in Christ. And in that definition of Christ, they see us as a unified body because that's what Christ has made us to be. So let's pray. Um, and then let's worship in spirit and in truth and in unity. And again, just a cool thing as we worship here, we're not only united with each other, but God is here with us. That's his promise to the church and that's his gift to the church.